We're going to start in chapter 15, verse 20. Paul is speaking, he says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As for as by man death came, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as an animal dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his order. Christ, the first fruits, then that is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. Can everybody say the end? When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you let us know that the end is here. The end is imminent. There's a consummation of human history, Father God, that you are about, that you are partaking in right now, Father God, and the end will come, as Paul teaches, as Christ teaches, as the prophets taught the other apostles. There is an end to human history, Father God, as we know it. And God will not take us by surprise, because each day we pick up our cross and we carry death in us, Father God as we look forward to that resurrection life with you, Father God. The end does not scare us, for the end for us is the beginning with you, Lord God. And we thank you when Paul says, then comes the end, it does not bring a great remorse into us, Father God, but there's a sound of rejoicing that takes place within our heart. There's something the spirit man cries out for now, the end. The end means life with you eternal, Father God. In a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where we will be in sinless bodies, Father God, not bound by the desires and affections of this world, Father God, but liberated totally from the sin and curse of Adam in this world, Father God. And we will live with you in Christ forever, Lord God, and worship you in purity and worship you, Father God, in spirit and in truth. Not by faith will we worship you anymore, but we will worship you by pure sight, Lord God. And we will fully know you as you have always fully known us. God, you're a gracious, gracious, gracious God. And we thank you, Father God, that the end for the believer is a joyful, triumphant sound. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The end. I think that's the title. It was the title. Somewhere up there. The end was the title. But uh, we're going to be speaking, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Uh, Something called Christian eschatology. If you're not familiar with the word, it means, anybody want to take a guess? I know we got some students that go to Sunday school. Christian eschatology, it means last things, last things. So we're going to do a study of Christian eschatology. It's a fancy word. I don't know if you can pronounce it. More important is that you know the concept, you know the reality of it and the truth of it, and that it pertains to every believer. You're doing eschatology as you sit there. I see it. Everywhere I look today, I see eschatology. I see last things. And there's a reason. Let me put it this way. Do you see last things? You see some things changing politically, don't you? Life's changing, things are changing. Does it have a great value to us? And we're going to be speaking about God's timetable, and I'm going to be speaking more about that today. But in the future weeks and months, I'll be speaking about things that pertain to the last things. 
specifically what life is going to be for us in this world, what life is going to be for us when we die intermittently. If Christ doesn't come back and we happen to go home and be with the Lord, what that's going to be like? Are we going to be in heaven in disem, uh, disembodied spirits? Uh, what, is that, what is that like? Should we be concerned with it? Uh, we should be con- not overly concerned, but we should know what the Bible teaches about what's going to happen to us. Uh, it's a joyful thing. And the Bible says a lot about it. And we're going to be speaking about the judgment. We're going to be speaking about heaven. We'll speak about hell. We'll speak about what happens to unbelievers. We'll speak about uh, believers when they stand before Christ and have an evaluation of how faithful they've been with their gifts and talents to the Lord. And so on and so forth. So Christian eschatology, things pertaining to the last things, has two aspects to it. Two aspects. One is One is historical. And that which answers the question, what is the meaning of human history? What's the meaning of human history? We know it's redemptive history. The other is personal eschatology, and that answers the question, what is the meaning of life? What happens to us personally when we die? Our concentration over the weeks and months to come will be more in a personal eschatology Life about us as being Christians and what happens to us when I die, where we go, and so on and so forth. I will speak a little bit on historical Christianity. You'll get a perspective on that as we go along. But let me give you an illustration of how practical this is to understand God's timetable, God's timeline. There is a timeline. And time anywhere has a practical function to it. We all live by time. Our life is divided by minute time, whether it's minutes or hours or giant epochs, whether they be decades or even centuries, time has a practical function to it. It divides our days, our months, our years into epochs that give us uh, a personality. It actually gives us equilibrium. Without time, without the rising of the sun, without the setting of the sun, without the moon and the stars, without the seasons, without a calendar, we'd be lost. We'd be lost. Uh, it's interesting that as uh, we know people that are in nursing homes and they're inside all the time and they lose sense of what? They don't know if it's Wednesday or Thursday. They don't know if it's 12. They can look at the clock and say it's 12 o'clock, but is it 12 midnight? It's, it's confusing. And you can see how, how limited they are because they don't know the time. There's a dysfunction that happens. It's not practical to them. It's actually confusion when you don't know the time. When you don't know where you are. Because it puts you in a place. Time says, this is where I am. If you look at a sign in the mall, it says, this is where you are. And this is where you want to go. It's very practical. In a sense, time has its meaning that way. It defines us in so many ways we don't really think about it. But it really does play a great part in our life. We, we live by the clock all the time. When it comes to eschatology, this is redemptive time. And God wants us to know where we are in redemptive time. Where are we? We're in the New Testament of grace. Okay, I understand that. But he wants us to know that it's getting close to the... Ah, you got it. Man, what a... John, you're doing a great job back there. Very proud of everybody here. It's a more functional, practical element to Christian eschatology than some fancy concept that belongs in ivory towers for the Christian thinkers to do and not just to come up here and throw some 
simple gospel truths at you to wash you for another 24 hours until you need some more simple gospel truth. This is about the depth of God's plan of redemption that should own and operate the mind and heart of every believer. It's the word of God. We need to preach it and we need to teach it. We are in time, redemptive time. And as Paul says, then the end will come. You cannot read a biblical writer. You cannot read a biblical testament without it alluding to something about where they are in time. Paul's mind was never, ever, a moment's away of thinking that the Lord can what? Come in any moment. And there's a reason. Because his Lord and Master told him, you don't know when the Son will return. So, pray and watch and be expectant. For the Son of Man can return like a thief in the night. And woe to those who are not ready. Redemptive time has a practical application. I might as well put it this way. We need it in our life. Slothfulness will settle in if I don't know the timetable of God. Think about an alarm clock. How many alarm clocks have kept people in their employment? How many time clocks have gotten people to school and get a degree? Without it, we wouldn't wake up. Most of us, anyway. Redemptive time has practical functionality to it. We need to understand it from a personal perspective. We need to understand it from a historical perspective. It's not speaking over the Christian's head. This is not, well, that's for others. Please understand, before I can even move on, this is only part one of the introduction. Please understand something. You need it as much as you need the watch on your iPhone, the one on your wrist, You need a clock in the morning. You need a calendar to tell your birth. You look at the calendar to plan your vacations. You take a calendar to plan your trips. You use a calendar to plan marriages. You and I do everything around a clock and a calendar. Well, guess what? So does... But he just doesn't use our calendar. Wouldn't it be nice if he used ours? He's got his own. But we are part of something that's ticking away. Can you not? Can you close your eyes? Please close your eyes real quick. And what do you hear? Tick, tock. Tick, tock. Don't you know you are two seconds, five seconds, ten seconds closer right now than you were ten seconds ago to see in Christ? Do you not know that we are a week closer than last week to see in Jesus Christ? This is why Paul says it another way. He says, the night is almost, the day is almost. Put off your sleep and put off your slumber and put on Christ. Make no provision for the flesh according to its evil desires and passions. For the night is nearly over, the day is nearly here. For the Bible writers, Christ was around the corner in all our efforts should be in preparation for his coming. I say that all to make a point that this series we'll be doing is no small thing that only a couple of Christians are supposed to talk about and converse about. It belongs in the hearts of every born-again child 
of God. Everyone. No matter where we are, no matter who we are, whether we're one day old in Christ or whether we're 50 years old in Christ. We are called to understand that God has a plan. He's working on a timetable. There's something Bible calls the end, the last days, or the day of the Lord. And it's coming. It's about to be here. We are part of it. As Paul says, we are closer to salvation today than when what? We first believed. It is here. It is about to take place. And we need to realize that and let it have an impact on our spiritual life. Both these aspects of eschatology, of last things, of both personal and historical, are dealt with all the time in the conscience of society. People are doing eschatology all the time. As we go through some of these, you'll hear and go, oh, yeah. I've heard someone say that the other day. People are thinking in eschatological concepts and framework all the time. The music we listen to speaks about it. Books we read. The news is talking about it. Politics is talking about it. What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of human history if there's any at all? Personally, people desire naturally find meaning. It's part of the, of the soul's cry, the soul's quest. And even asks that sometimes the big questions of life. What's life all about? What's existence all about? On a, human level, uh, on a human level, on a narrow sense, people usually look about the future, about you know, planning a school, a job, money, family, health. And then whatever personal preferences people have that naturally flow from these things. They're thinking about what? Their parents are thinking about their children's. Everybody's thinking about the who's looking forward to going to work tomorrow. Who's looking forward to being off Friday. You're looking towards the everybody's looking towards the future. Everybody is. It is a common thing in life. It goes on all the time. They're trying to make it work. Religion or philosophy uh, uh, plays on how people approach the future, how they approach death, how they approach the afterlife. These priorities usually change to some degree as people get older and experience age and the reality of mortality people start to think in different ways when they realize the end is coming, everybody knows there's an end many people try to take the reality of the end and push it into hospitals and push it and they quarantine the living from those who are almost dead, quarantine we don't want to know about the end keep it away from my little sphere Even on a human nature, we don't want to be around the sick and dying. I want to live. I don't want to be reminded about the end. You can't get away from it. It's everywhere. The end is everywhere. You have your political theorists and other dreamers are always thinking about a better society. A heaven on earth existence. We're evolving into something much better, they think. People are becoming better. Statistics, and I've read this, show a greater humanity emerging filled with compassion and kindness. I don't know where they're looking. (laughs) I'd like to know. You can make statistics say whatever you want them to say. 
I've read another report, crime in their mind is slowing down. We're on a precipice of a new era. If only we can relieve humanity of religious bigotry and economic equality and promote tolerance. Their brand of tolerance, not God's brand, but their brand. If we are a little more pragmatic, you know what that means? That means no moral or religious absolutes. Religious and moral absolutes are a threat to society. Where the problem? It's the absolutes. Get rid of those and we'll start to live more in harmony with each other. We can do it. We're right there. It's in our sights. Collectively, their final stage, their end would look something like a social, intellectual, physical, moral, spiritual development or earthly utopia. Like I said, these are political theorists and dreamers. They're the poets. They're the songwriters. They're the book writers. They're there. It might sound way out there, but it's out there. You don't have to look far. People think along these lines. This this desire for a better future, both personal and uh, societal, is natural in humanity. Very natural, actually. God put it there when he said to Adam, God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis 1.28, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was the birth of man's hope, his future, his destiny. It's instilled, imbued into mankind. It's in our genetic, biological, physiological, psychological DNA. We want a future. There's no one sitting here that doesn't want something better tomorrow or better next week or better next year. Who in here is not hoping for something better over the next year? Please, do you have everything you want? (laughs) Why aren't there any hands raised? Because we want a better... Thank you, Brother Eric. Right on, spot on, brother. It's natural. It's part of what God made us as human beings. To have expectancy and have hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, the Bible says. But a promise fulfilled is a tree of life. We understand when you get the raise, you get the job, you get the good report from the doctor, so on and so forth. It's, it's something nice. There's just something nice. It's, it's nice. It's part of life. Hope is part of life. But all attempts, both personal and societal, to bring it about will eventually be a lesson in what? Frustration. Can't do it. The Bible gives us a great example of human potential. It's called the Tower. My wife is wonderful. She read my notes. Nah, she knows. The Tower of Babel. It's a lesson in frustration. They really believed they were on the, the verge of a new humanity. There was nothing they put their hands to that they could not do. Listen to Jehovah. And the Lord saw, and behold, they are like one people, he said. And they have all one language, language and this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they uh, propose to do will now be impossible to them. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? Hey, 
They're all locked arm in arm together with one language, in unity of spirit, in the bond of peace, it looks like anyway. They're going in the right direction. But if you're familiar with Genesis 11, they never used the word God. It was always us, us, us. God was not in the equation. That was the problem. Mankind never has God in the equation. Mankind's future never has God in the equation. He's not in the equation. It's humanism. It's secularism. It's we can do it. We don't need God. We've already eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have taken destiny upon ourselves. If there's a problem, we'll fix it. Only God has the answer, the power, the wisdom to bring out of sinful chaos perfection. Only God can do that. Not the builders of the Tower of Babel, nor the UN, nor our government, or any government, or a coalition of wonderful, well-meaning, and well-intentioned governments could ever bring perfection in a utopia the way they'd like to, at a sinful imperfection. You cannot do it. Sin begets. Sinful reasoning begets. A godless society begets. That's it. Take away sin. You don't need a savior. You don't need religion. You don't need Christianity. You don't need Christians. Ah, say lovey. The only thing left now for us as Christians to thrive and enjoy our future hope in this world with no hope, in the midst of chaos and deception, is faith. Faith that grasps the things we cannot see. The end is something we cannot see. When Paul says, and then comes the end. At one time, that had a a, a fearful ring to it. Before I knew Christ, the end. I saw all those end time things have grown up in the 70s, and that, that was fearful, like... A comet could come at any moment and destroy us. We have evidence that that's already happened. Why is it going to happen again when I'm here? That's a fearful thought. There is an end. Praise God there's an end of a sinful humanity. But one day God's going to reign where there is no sin, no power of sin, no death and no Satan in a perfect world of righteousness, and faith grasps this now, and faith is the substance of what? Things hoped for. Faith has eyes that no one else has. Faith can see what, re- what reason reasons away. The existence of God, and the existence of what we want in the future, a better life. God has promised that for us. This is Christian eschatology at its best. Faith that grasps the things we cannot see, But yet God promises them things eternal only for the Christians who hope in God and believe in his word, whose vision is not cluttered by worldly desires or not cluttered by worldly affections, who have set their hope, as Paul says, on God and the eternal reward, who cry out with Paul and the apostle John Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. This is Christian eschatology. This is our hope. The hope of glory. Christ in us. Let me move on to some major thoughts on human history and personal history. We need to address this before we can move on to what the Bible says is our hope for the future. In our society today, there are certain 
how can I say, world or next world outlooks that people and even our loved ones find themselves in. There's eschatology. People are thinking through life. They're asking the big questions in very simplistic ways. There's something in them that wants to know. They're reaching out for something. Either by deliberate choice, people follow religion or philosophy because they're looking for some kind of answer to life. Or by default, by not making any clear choice, people make themselves vulnerable to anything. They'll believe anything, even their own vain imaginations about life and death and what the world's supposed to be. One of the major outlooks on human history for centuries was the influence on many people in the classic Greek philosophers. They influenced many, many thinkers. They still do. And their outlook on human history was cyclical. They believed and thought that history just goes on in cycles, that humans can advance in some areas of life, intellectual or technological or medical and other areas of life, even social. But at the end, they believed morally they were spiritually the same. They have not advanced at all. So history would be cyclical. It it would change, the face would change, the demographics would change. But each society basically would have the same failures, same hopes, but basically be the same place. That's what they believed. To them, history personally had no meaning at all and ultimately leads to frustration. This is what the Greek philosophers taught that still influenced many, many thinkers today, even though it's over 2,000 years old, 3,000 years old. Therefore, the spirit needs to be set free from the body. Please understand this. It's a big and new age. Therefore, the spirit needs to be set free from the body and the limitations of time and space is what the Greeks believed. Time and space to them was an anomaly. They could they had no reason for it. It just ended in frustration. So you had to die, leave the body, and the limitations of time and space and enter into soul immortality. I like that because when you read on it, it's really undefined. It, you enter into the eternal conscience. You see uh, Oriental religions and New Age. They, they've revised this and there's a, a sort of revival in this kind of thinking, this eternal conscience. It all sounds good. It's something I wouldn't go to bed with and I'm having a hard time. That's for sure. I don't want to go to the grave with this. But people believe in this. The soul immortality. And uh, they don't know what to do with time and space. Human history, they just couldn't, they, it had no purpose. There's a growing trend today also about uh, 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 an atheistic outlook on history, which sees human history as what humans can make out of it. Or have made out of it. Nothing more. There's no God, so there's no purpose or plan. History is without meaning. There's no significant pattern to be found in history. No goal to be attained. Only a meaningless succession of events. Human history is going nowhere because it came from. It had no beginning, so it has no. It's drifting off into the sea of nothingness. It's well-defined nothing is what it is. It's well-defined nothing. Life at its best is nothing but individualistic, and its worth is found in what we can personally get out of it. That's the atheistic outlook. Secularization. 
Number three is a famous one. It's an all-time favorite amongst the so-called spiritual people. It has many versions, and uh, this is reincarnation. This is a lovely one. But it's big. Many, many people. You hear today, there's probably people you conversed with in at least the last month that believe in this. Loved ones we know will, will love this. Reincarnation, understand, let me explain something about it. They see history and personal life as a succession of other lives before this one. A continuing succession. It's a constant life and death and rebirth to a higher plane of spirituality. Again, it's undefined. Some call this the soul's journey. They're on a soul journey. Uh, You can be a man in this life, you can be a woman in the next life. You could have been a general in the past life. You could be a plant in the next life. You can come back as a dog. You can come back as a carpenter, so on and so forth. And you go through this, uh, you know, this process uh, of, of, uh, of, of a spiritual soul's journey. And it always has a positive connotation. I want you to listen to this. They conjure up this theory, the soul journey, which has a positive connotation to... Of, Eventually going to the ideal humanity. Is anybody familiar with the teachings of reincarnation? They're purifying the soul. I spoke to one person who follows this and I said, well, what's wrong with the soul? You see, when you're saying I'm purifying the soul, you're telling me something's wrong. Something's missing. You're identifying a problem that needs to be fixed. Needs to be fixed. But they don't know what the problem is. They just know something needs to be fixed. So reincarnation is the answer to this. Uh, Christians have a word for this. It's called sanctification and redemption. And a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? You see, what happens here is that they try to reconcile the human desire for long life and even eternal life and the quality of life. But they need to reconcile this in the face of constant failures and frustrations. So people that recognize something's missing in life, something's broken in life, reincarnation, if you're going to dismiss Christianity, is viable. It's like, all right, there's there's something I can believe in here. I'm going to get better. It's not going to be in this world, but I'll believe in the next world. And that somehow through this washing machine of recycling the soul, I'm going to come out of better humanity, and so on and so forth. But people believe in this. This is eschatology. So when we talk about Christian eschatology, don't think that people aren't embracing this. And they're sincere. Please understand something. These are our friends. These are, many Christians come out of this. They're sincere. They know something's wrong, but they just don't know what it is. Maybe some of them have totally rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. But many of them just are naive. And it's the blind leading the blind. And there's an emptiness in the soul. And there's a fear of dying. There's a fear of the end. So reincarnation is something that goes beyond the death. It goes beyond the grave. And it sort of brings some kind of hope into the life now. But it's a deceptive false hope. Then there's all the religious worldviews. They differ from one another in many points, but all talk about some kind of coming of the kingdom of God. The Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, Islam, they all have this sort of uh, concept of the kingdom of God. 
and they're all working towards this. Though they differ on many points, one thing they all teach, and that's a works righteousness approach to God and death. That the more good you can do according to each one's own plan of what good is, Islam, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever that is, unfortunately, even Roman Catholicism falls into this with their self-works-righteousness uh, approach to, uh, uh, of, uh, to God and salvation, unfortunately, they fall into that. So what happens, people fall into this framework, and this is how they're going to try to deal with the reality of mortality, by thinking they're well, good enough. Has anybody ever heard that before? Now, I'm not going to say this. I say this out of sincerity. Of all the talks I have with personal loved ones over this, no one's confident about it. They speak about it with a sense of, I really don't know. There's this secret hope that it's going to work out somehow. You might as well buy a lottery because there's a secret hope. Many people have a lottery ticket. They go home and who's not dreaming about the boat? Who's not? They're dreaming about it. But it's not a real reality. It's the same thing with this kind of approach. But many people have fallen into either this reincarnation, this religious view, or they've fallen into uh, the, the Greek view of history and life. And there's something else that's familiar to all of us. We're all familiar with the grand reunion, and this is many people have a personal hope of just seeing their loved ones again, and, and they go through this life that we're going to see each other again on the other side, and that, you know, my grandmother, and with this, this, maybe this picnic sort of thing, and, and it's sad, and, 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 and they'll go through the framework of their life with this grand reunion that's undefined, it's personal, it's secretive, it can only be uh, uh, embraced by them themselves, it has nothing to do with the sin. It has nothing to do with God. It only has to do with them and their personal family. Has anybody ever heard that before? It's real. That's the grand reunion. A lot of these things overlap and pollinate, cross-pollinate with each other. And again, we see something here. The ultimate goal is personal satisfaction. According to eschatology, it's never to the glory of God. Because God has been removed from the equation. No sin, no salvation, no need of God. A glory that has God at the helm of existence, the way it was in the garden. As the creator. A glory that has humanity loving and obeying and enjoying God in the universe. Where God is the center of everything. Where all hearts are turned towards God as the center of everything. And find their ultimate fulfillment in right relation to Him. All these worldviews, all these approaches to eschatology and dealing with the end, everybody Please understand this. Everybody we know is dealing with the big question, the end. Everybody is. Everybody. They might be drinking at the bar with Joe. They might be into the drugs. They might be into philosophy. They might be at church right now. But everybody's trying to deal with the big question of eschatology, the end. But God is not the center of that end. 
Only Christian eschatology gives us an understanding of life the way God designed it. And last but not least is science has its own brand of eschatology of the end. They know the earth will one day end. They know that. We all know that. It cannot go on forever. Mathematically, it just cannot. Their hope is that, and I've seen this, is that the humans will somehow, some way, colonize the universe on spaceships and so on and so forth. Understand something. That's not something to laugh at because the, the, the human spirit is very uh, inventive, very resilient. I mean, in the, in, in the 40s, no one would have thought that they were going to put people on the moon. So I don't laugh at this. I mean, it is possible. It is not. If they could have built Babel, they can build a super spaceship maybe. If we live long enough, they'll have the technology to possibly do this. I don't laugh at it. But it's not God. Unless the gospel's going with it, it's not God. If God's out of that equation, he's not on a spaceship. He's not invited. Doesn't have a ticket. But then there's the personal, not just the historical. Scientists have eventually, I was listening to one of these science programs, and this uh, astrophysicist, uh, theorist, I actually like the gentleman, but he was gazing up to the star and said, the time will come when we'll all be part of the stardust again. And he's got this twinkle in his eye. <laughs> and that was their personal eschatology, that one day they'll be part of the universe again, and maybe somehow through two or three or four more big bangs and so on and so forth, they might become out a human being or a plant or something else again. And that's where they drift. But understand something. This is real hope to them. This gives them a framework to try to understand existence. Don't miss that. This is their time frame. This is how they box it in and they try to understand their life. There's something interesting, interesting sim- many similarities to all these, if we put them all together, with each other and with the Christian gospel. All these things we just read. They all have similarities with the Christian gospel. Basically, it sounds like this. There's something missing. Amen? There is something wrong that needs to be. They're striving striving for a common cause. They want peace. They want love. They want a higher spirituality or, or intellect. The atheists would think more intellect. They're into the intellect. There has to be more to life. Has to be more to life. But we haven't found it yet. And everybody's looking to the future for something. Thank you. Now, can we say amen to this? It's out there. We see it. You see, you hear it in conversations with people. If, if you're engaged with any kind of deep thinkers, if you're bringing the big questions of life to people, and evangelism should do that, then you would hear all this kind of stuff. There's a gentleman that came here not too long ago, and I ran into him in the, in the gym one day, and I said, oh, let, me, let me speak to him. You know, this is a divine appointment. And I started speaking to him, and I started speaking about the Lord, and you know, he lovingly just went into this whole thought process. Well thought out, but made absolutely no sense. It was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it really had no meaning at all. 
And so I just asked him a basic question. Do you want to put all your hope in that? Is that something you want to go to the grave with? I always end the con- those philosophical conversations. I always end with that. You sure you want to go to the grave with that thought process? Do you want to face death with that thought process? If they say, well, yeah, then I just say, well, I love you. God bless you. And move on. And I'll keep my relationship with the people. But there's nothing I can do now. That's a sad way to come to the end. Of course, the Christian knows that the end is not not just for the Christian. For the sinner, too. Death is not the end. There's life in hell and there's life in heaven. Talking to a Christian minister one day, someone I, I, I hold in high esteem, someone I really like, and I was speaking to him, we were speaking, like that's what ministers do, we speak about sermons and so on and so forth. And I spoke to him about, yeah, I did a, uh, not a series, I did a sermon on hell. And I didn't get too many words out, and he goes, oh, I never preached a sermon on hell. He goes, I don't do that. And, and I was sort of taken off guard. You know, why not? Why not, if the Bible and Jesus says so much about it, would you not talk to God's people about what Christ saved them from? It's just, do we go through the Christian faith with just an assumed, I'm delivered from hell? Or do we know, do we really know that the end will not end in misery, but in a great triumphant reward that we don't deserve? Can I possibly appreciate everything Christ has done in heaven if I don't believe or teach or, or, or counsel men to stay out of hell? Can we possibly enjoy the riches of heaven? Can I sit here and expound on the riches of heaven and what Christ paid for, what we don't fully at all deserve in bit or in whole? Can I possibly truly feast on heaven if I don't realize I've been saved from hell? No. No. It's not an open question. You can't. Can I possibly preach on the love of God without warning men of God's justice and hatred of sin? No, I can't. That is not the love that the apostles preached. It's not the love Christ preached. It's not the love the prophets preached. As Christians, we reject all these views and similar ones. The scriptures from the beginning to the end hold out a grand plan that God is executing. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. It's redeeming. It's it's overwhelming. It, it fills us with glory. It fills us with, with, with joy. It fills us with peace. It fills us with, with hope and expectation. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And tonight was just part one of God's timetable. I will speak more about this. This is just a minor introduction. I'm not even going to finish with everything else. I'm going to close up. But next week I will show you from what it looks like from Genesis 
throughout the whole Old Testament into the New Testament and where we live right now, where we are on the precipice of the second coming of Jesus Christ and how we are exhorted to live as those the Bible says are in the last day, that the last days are among us, that the day of the Lord is about to come and how we are to live in the last second of human history. We are in the last second of human history. Let's live like saved people in the last second of human history by God's grace. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you do have a clock, God, and, and we're part of it now. And all the unbelief in the world can never stop the words of the Apostle Paul. And then the end will come. All the philosophies, all the religion... 15 billion people saying, no, he's wrong, doesn't make it right. The end will come. Father God, teach us for those who live in the already not yet existence of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.